Hey, I'm Sarah. I'm a journalist based in Ottawa. I've been overwhelmed lately by a curiosity in misinformation and disinformation and its impact on the journalism industry. Not only is it changing the way journalists report, but it's changing the credibility of their reporting. It's becoming too easy for demagogues and their supporters to attack journalists as purveyors of false news over simple critique, the very essence of journalism. Something that's also sparked the interest of World Press Freedom Canada, an organization that monitors and defends press freedom. So I'm teaming up with them to peel back the layers of this issue, starting with the basics and ending with a bit of a clearer path forward so we can identify and quash misinformation and disinformation when we see it and better understand the integrity of good journalism. So stick around for the journey. Welcome back. As we've been discussing on this podcast so far, misinformation and disinformation and their enhanced presence in our lives are creating a society where each of us is living in our own siloed reality, sometimes positive, sometimes deeply negative. And as we learned last episode, that has a major impact on how we function as a collective. When we no longer see what our neighbors see, it affects social cohesion. We begin to identify in each other our differences more often than our similarities. Now, throw in a pandemic and things get a lot more complicated. Any public health crisis requires group decision-making, respect, and the utmost trust in our leaders. That becomes challenging when confusion, anxiety, impatience, and doubt are sky high. People are inclined to think inward and lean into messages that comfort them, irrespective of accuracy. So how have misinformation and disinformation impacted our collective response to COVID-19? Well, Chris Dornan, a former journalist, author, and professor at Carleton University, dug into this and more broadly, the threat of science disinformation. He joins us first, and then we'll speak to Mia Rapson, a journalist with the Canadian press who's been covering the pandemic since it began, about what it was like to sift through the flood of information and separate fact from falsehoods. And Chris joins me now. Hi, Chris. Hello, Sarah. Before I get, because I want to talk about the pandemic specifically, but when you talk about science disinformation, are you also, because in, in, in this paper, you say too, there, there's already a base level skepticism towards science, right, mm-hmm. in, in, in human society. So add on the prevalence of misinformation, disinformation on social media, and, and is it just enhanced, like that that, that it, it becomes very easy to spread that kind of information about science-based um, material because mm-hmm. there's already maybe just some skepticism around it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we've long had people have, have long believed that that uh, the Earth is being visited by extraterrestrials, or that the moon landing never happened, mm. uh, or um, you know they they believe in the healing power of of, of crystals. You know, there's been a, a, a long-standing, uh, not only belief in what we might call pseudoscience or anti-science, um, but a long-standing and perfectly legitimate, uh, in many cases, uh, uh, hesitancy or skepticism about science. I mean, science is a, uh, is a, a hugely powerful social force and institution. 
And much of science is conducted in the interests of, of power and profit. It, it's mm. uh, science, scientific research and its uh, industrial application are conducted by the military and by corporations. And so you can understand uh, why uh, there might be a, a, a natural kind of healthy mm -hmm. skepticism uh, uh, towards science. But um, social media have, you know, in, in the past, when the mass media in the late 20th century, when the mass media really were the institutions that brokered public knowledge uh, about the, um, those types of, of anti-scientific views could be sequestered. Mm. They, they were kind of marginalized. The, the uh, mainstream media, the responsible media, didn't accord them much credence. With the advent of, of social media, um, the, the, the purveyors of, of anti-science have uh, been provided with a megaphone that right. they, they never had before. So let's talk about COVID-19 then and the pandemic. Suddenly governments are around the world are making decisions solely based on science, based on the advice of public health officers and infectious disease specialists. And given what you've just said about that existing hesitancy, it feels like it's the perfect storm, like a trust storm. Yes, uh, that's exactly what's going on. It, it, it was a kind of uh, contest over public confidence um, and public confidence in uh, not only the authorities, but the very notion of authority um, it has, has come under assault. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that, that is in, in, in many ways uh, made possible by uh, the proliferation of, of social media and digital, digital media channels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's one thing when we disagree with one another in, say, the political realm. Right. I mean, politics is, is inherently divisive. It's, it's, it's just a big cauldron of, of disagreement. And, you know, in many ways, liberal democracy is really just one uh, incessant ongoing <laughs> argument about where a society's priority should mm -hmm. lie. Um, so, you know, you know, it, it, it's perfectly understandable and we're used to uh, the political realm being fractious and, uh, you know, a contest of what we should believe and what we should know. When that, the, the problem with, with uh, uh, you know, with, with that uh, being directed towards science it's it's really I think what's a, what makes it dangerous, what becomes at risk is when the notion of rationality itself right. um, is 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 brought into into question, hmm. um, and and you know science is the preeminent exemplar of rationality. It's science is really a way of addressing the world. It's a way of organizing our, our analytical thought and uh, our contact with the, the empirical world so that you know, we, can have, we can have confidence in, in, in what we know. Hmm. Um, the, 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 the rise of, kind of, of irrationality amounts to um, you know, a crisis of, of confidence in uh, the methods that we have at our disposal to know what is reliable ab about the world. Um, right. And that, you know, may may lead, that that may have very actually quite very pernicious uh, consequences where um, you don't know what to believe and you don't you're basically encouraged not to believe yeah. anything. Yeah, and it was 
it was awfully challenging when even those people at the top that were making decisions were, there were so many unknowns, they were confused, they were uncertain, they had contradictory advice at times. And, mm-hmm. so, and we hadn't seen something like this before at this scale. So mm-hmm. we were feeling a lack of trust at the top. Yes, you're right. I mean, the, uh, you know, this is absolutely, this is a completely novel coronavirus. Uh, we, uh, we, we have become, I think, more confident in, uh, in our knowledge of how the virus actually behaves and the uh, best, best methods to, to mitigate its effects. But, uh, you know, even, even, you know, our best placed minds, mm. Uh, actually themselves, their understanding of of the disease changed. And as a consequence, their prescriptions about what we should do about it changed. And that that in in itself, you know, was was disquieting Mm -hmm. to members of the public. But what what further exacerbated it, of course, um, was that, you know, the highest executive office in in the most powerful country in, in, in the world uh, the president of the of the United States and those around him right. were essentially undercutting the, uh, uh, the 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 best advice of epidemiologists and virologists and public health experts in what to do about mm-hmm. this. So, you know, if you're a member of the public and the president of the United States is telling you that that this disease can be cured by drinking Javex or, you know, illuminating the, uh, the body with uh, high powered lights um, or that if if the political authorities are telling you that uh, the reaction to the pandemic has, has been overblown. Well, right. that that can't fail. Yeah, uh, they can help, but to undermine uh, public confidence and to sow confusion. Yeah. So that was that I was going to say that that to me pops into my mind as as a point of misinformation and disinformation over the past year that was really overt, like the drinking bleach thing. I heard that at first. Actually, I had first heard that the that Corona beer gave you the coronavirus that was spreading for a while, and then the drinking bleach would solve yeah. it. How were was it? And then, and then, as time went on, I'm sure it became more subtle. Uh, misinformation, disinformation, swirling online. Like, what is what has that looked like over the last year? And and what has the impact been? Well, I mean, curiously, a lot of the, the, the as I as I mentioned, I mean, there were there were kind of deliberately fraudulent uh, sources of of disinformation. But there was also a kind of species of, of misinformation that arose from people who were actually, uh, you know, quite smart and engaged with the problem mm. and who thought they know they knew better than the public health authorities themselves. Mm. Uh, so um, you got a kind of uh, it, it, it's, it's curious that um, you got misinformation being generated by people who, um, you know, we're acting in, in good faith and we're. We're following principles that uh, that we uh, that that we as a society uphold. You know, we 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 teach students uh, critical thinking. Yeah. We teach them to question authority. Right. Um, don't believe everything you read in the paper. I mean, th- those those are good impulses, uh, but 
um, that 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 impulse to question authority gave rise to um, uh, swaths of misinformation um, that uh, whose express purpose was to undermine confidence in, in the public health authorities and to get people um, not to adhere to the measures that the public health authorities were, were recommending. Um, that, I think, you know, here the, the danger lies in what uh, political theorists call a legitimation crisis, mm-hmm. where um, that members of the public don't believe what they're being told by scientific experts or by their political leaders. Um, I want to ask you, too, just before we go, so you, you write science is not, and we've talked about this a little bit, but science is not an avenue to absolute truth. It is a way of addressing and apprehending the natural world. It, if it, it is a means of thinking or rather a way to organize analytical thought. As journalists, our role in this pandemic, how do mm-hmm. we how how is it how do we best articulate that i mean th- th- that's a whole other conversation i mean reporting yeah. on this pandemic has been a and we're going to get into that uh in our next conversation but um with a journalist on the ground but i, I want to get your sense too like how can we take it given what you've articulated how can journalists best present that information We'll have to wait for kind of yeah. considered assessments of what role the media played in all this and how well the reporting function uh, of journalism was performed. Hmm. My own my own immediate reaction, though, on uh, monitoring this is that uh, certainly in Canada, I think that the reporters who have covered the pandemic have actually done a, a, a very good job. They've been conscientious. They've been responsible. Um, they've been they've been meticulous. The the, the coverage has uh, has been, of course, you know, the, you know, it's the primary pre it has been our primary preoccupation for for the last year, and rightly so. Um, and that's that's uh, I, I I think uh, to be applauded, especially since you know as, as we know. The traditional news media are themselves working with diminished resources. Uh, they don't have uh, the number of employees that they mm-hmm. that they used to have mm-hmm. in in the late twentieth century. You know, there, there was a time when you know we had health reporters and we had you know science was a beat uh, unto itself in in uh, newsrooms like the Globe and Mail mm-hmm. or the CBC or CTV. Um, uh, so I, I think the uh, the reporters have done a very good job. They, they've uh, educated themselves on the subject, and in so doing, they've educated us, mm. on, uh, the the public, on on the subject. There's also, a, you know, part of the the labor of journalism is is reporting, but part of the labor of journalism is also analysis and commentary. Mm. The type of journalistic analysis and commentary we've we've had on uh, on this. Uh, um, in some respects, uh, has, I'm sure, been infuriating to the public health authorities that they see uh, the the armchair critics mm-hmm. in uh, who write columns in the National Post and elsewhere um, as uh, being unhelpful. Um, but you know, I have to we have to remind ourselves that uh, you know that type of 
reflexive questioning and dispute on the part of journalistic commentators is actually essential. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the that's how we hold our political authorities to account, uh, and any. Um, you know, properly designed public education campaign rolled out by the public health authorities would have to take into account that they're not going to get unanimous no. agreement or applause from the commentariat in the in the, the fourth estate. I really appreciate your time, Chris, and uh, thank you so much for your insights. And I would encourage everyone to go. I will I will remind people to go read this paper. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was a delight to talk to you. Take care. All right, now I'm going to bring in Mia Rapson for the Canadian Press. Hey, Mia. Hello. Okay, I want to roll back to the start of the pandemic. There were just piles of info getting slapped down each day. What was that like as a journalist working in the field when we were all trying to digest this new reality and it quickly became, or quickly, I should say, and it became and become knowledgeable about something that was for the most part, pretty unknown. I mean, the main word and the first word that comes to mind is exhausting. Mm-hmm. I just remember very long days um, absorbing a lot of information. And the weirdest thing as a journalist was covering it from my living room instead hmm. of in person. As a journalist, we are usually the ones who run towards the fire. Right. Um, we're not usually the ones covering it from afar, but we were ordered... Um, as many were, we were ordered very quickly to stay home. We were not allowed uh, in the office um, for for months. To be honest, it was right. uh, it was quite strict and a little bit surprising. Just you know, just how unusual it was for journalists to be to not be there. And so that part was just sort of added to all of. I mean, anybody who was dealing with this pandemic had to learn how to work from home, really. But um, it just added to the the difficulty, I guess. Um, and then we also had just a ton of information coming at us. Yeah. I remember one day sitting and watching press conferences from the prime minister, from the right. chief health officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, and then the finance minister, and I think the Bank of Canada governor, and they were just back to back to back. Mm-hmm. And there was no time to really digest or produce anything. It was just, it was, it was just exhausting. And right. so that settled down. Eventually we settled into the new normal. I would say sort of by the by early April, it took us a couple of weeks just to sort of get used to it and not feel just completely run over by it all. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it was never easy. And to be honest, it's still not easy. <laughs> yeah, I know because right now we're, I mean, we're still learning new things every day. It's been hard to really scrutinize what they've said um, because it's, 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 we don't know a lot about it. And there's also a component too, that I, I'm wondering if you have felt, were you ever cautious to be the amount to which you were screwed to, to be uh, skeptical or a critical of public health guidance in your articles, given we need people to trust the leadership at the top, you know, in terms of of restrictions and mask wearing and all that kind of stuff, you know, were, were you ever in a bit of a bind there? It is in the back of my mind, particularly now on vaccines, for example. Yes. Okay, how do I report something if I'm worried that it's going to just add to any, any further hesitancy? But my job as a journalist is not to decide mm. for the public what they should and shouldn't know. I mean, mm. obviously it's a component in that we we make decisions every day about what we're going to report on. Um, but I have to sort of shove that to the back 
every time it comes up in my mind that, well, what if this has a negative impact on people's decision to get a vaccine? Because my job is to tell them what the situation is. Mm. And then we can also make sure that we're reporting the recommendations or the guidance and what the experts are saying. I think one of the things early on that really was raising a lot of questions from reporters was the mask issue. And um, it's sort of the most prominent one. I mean, I'm sure there were other ones, but it's the one that I keep coming back to because we were hearing from other countries that they were wearing masks and particularly in Asia where they had dealt with SARS more directly than we did mm-hmm. or more fully I, I, in a bigger way, I guess, than Canada did. They were started wearing masks immediately. It just wasn't an issue. And it seemed that that, that helped control the spread of the vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, vaccine sorry, the virus yeah. very quickly there. And so we were constantly saying, but why are you telling us not to wear them? Right. And are you telling us not to wear them because it's really, you know, you are really worried that we're going to touch our face more or that we're not going to wear them properly? Or is it because we don't have enough masks for the frontline workers? Mm-hmm. And I we press them on that a lot. And to be honest, I'm still not 100% sure mm-hmm. how much the lack of PPE played into their decision to recommend people not use it. Right. But it's also been, and the public has struggled with this as well, when you're in a pandemic and the information about something is changing hourly, if yeah. you know, daily at the least, science is going to change and the recommendations based on science are there before going to change. And you kind of want that to happen. But as a journalist, we're usually kind of like, well, gotcha. You said that right. yesterday and you changed your mind. So, but that's what, that's really how science that's works. And so trying to you know, come to terms with that as a journalist is the same as what the public is dealing with, because it's sometimes hard to, to wrap your head around the fact that they weren't lying to us when they told us they were worried that masks were not useful early on. It's that mm. that the science at that point suggested that there was maybe a risk. And mm. then as that indication changed, they changed their mind. And so it's a difference between whether they were actually giving us false information versus they were just updating the information as the evidence that they had changed. There's also been an onslaught of misinformation and disinformation, especially into the second wave. How have you have you picked up on that? Uh, maybe as it relates to vaccine hesitancy, even or and and how have you navigated it? If so, I'd say for me, it's been more on the vaccines and and sort of early on. I mean, we saw a lot of the conspiracy theories. That's just noise to me. Mm. I mean, unless a conspiracy theory is being put out there by someone who actually has a voice and a yeah. following that makes it has a big influence in Canada. Um, it's really just noise for us. And that was maybe happening more in the United States than it was here. Um, and so that really wasn't there, but the vaccine, because that's also been my sort of main beat for the last yeah. four months, it's definitely there. You get hit with it a lot. Hmm. Um, and not just in terms of actual misinformation, but the impact of several decades of vaccine hesitancy and vac- anti-vaccination rhetoric, I think, is underlining a lot of the right. concerns we have whenever something happens with a vaccine. And the AstraZeneca vaccine right now is a right. perfect example. I mean, as we're in, as we're talking, I'm sitting here waiting for a note to come through that the European Medicines Agency has yes. made a new declaration about what's happening. In the meantime, half of Europe, if not more, has paused. A lot of that is maybe because we are already sort of primed to be skeptical of vaccines, even if we are supportive of them. Mm-hmm. And so trying to make sure that we're reporting the information properly and not sort of either increasing the hysteria, but also not hiding what's happening. These are all normal things that happen with vaccines. 
we just don't usually pay that much attention because we're not in a pandemic where getting the vaccine is the difference between whether or not my kid can go to school or, you know, I can see my parents again, or, you know, like it's the, the, the stakes are much higher. Uh, And so we're paying a lot more attention. There is definitely a ton of misinformation. I see it on social media. I saw it in my community in, in Ottawa in December, there was a man driving a van around the streets with one of those like blaring video. I don't know. It's like scrolling things basically saying the vaccine is stealing your DNA. And I was like, what is happening? (laughs) Yes. I think that that the good news is that as we're watching this, this rollout, despite some of the concerns people have, it seems with every new poll that's taken, more people are indicating they're willing to take the vaccine. They want to take the vaccine. Um, hesitancy isn't growing. It's actually shrinking. Uh, yeah. And so I think that's an excellent sign, um, both that Canadians are, are thinking critically about the situation um, and they're able to, most Canadians are able to wade through through the noise. There was that one too about Bill Gates, like wanting to just inject yeah. everyone with a vaccine so we can monitor. Yeah, I wonder the long-term impact of this too, like whether or not the vaccine, anti-vaxxer movement will be more muted going forward, given how how mainstream this discussion has been and how, like you say, the weight of it, that it will allow us to return to some semblance of normalcy. Anyway, we'll have to. Yeah. Well, we'll and I see. guess we'll see how well it works, right? I mean, if the yeah. vaccines go off with, with generally not a lot of hitches and they are really the way we go back to normal life, maybe yeah. more people will, will trust them. I think more people have an understanding of how they're made and what goes into the process. Yeah. And that's been a big part of what I want to do as a reporter yeah. as well. It's not just say this vaccine has been approved, but go a little bit deeper behind everything that has gone into that and and exp- like ants like the questions people are asking in general like how did we get these vaccines so quickly are the same questions I'm asking hmm. um, and I I have just as a reporter but also as 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 a person as a mom mm-hmm. you know as as a as a person who wants her parents to to survive this yeah um, so you know that's one of the unique aspects as a journalist in covering all of this is we are normally observers of incidents that we're covering we're not living them at the same time as we're covering them and so that has added a whole new perspective to how you manage uh, your job in this because everything we're writing about is affecting us and our loved ones as well yeah we have a personal stake in it yes that's true yeah Thank you, Mia. I really appreciate your time and all that you do for all of us learning about this and uh, your role that you're playing. So uh, thank you and uh, hope to chat with you soon. Thank you. Take care. That was my conversation with Chris Dornan and Mia Rapson. Coming up next episode, we look at policing social media or whether social media should police itself.